Well, good evening, everyone. It's a delight to be here um, after so many years, and thank you for the invitation. And I'm looking forward to this. I also bring you greetings from Grace Church Broccoli um, this evening. Let's pray before we start. Father God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, your spirit who accompanies that word, and we pray that you'll be with us this evening. We pray that you will speak to us through your word. Apply it to our hearts, Lord. We pray that we'll be good listeners as we hear from you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Psalm 127, and it would be really helpful if you keep that open with you um, as we go through. What makes a good life? A life well lived? It's an important question, isn't it? It certainly used to be one which was discussed more than perhaps it is now. And maybe it's because it's my 50th year, and I'm about to start the process of seeing my children leave home and go off to university. It may be the fact that my mother is aging, as you well know, and in a nursing home. But this question has particular resonance for me. I'm conscious that I have more of my life behind me than in front of me. What makes a life well lived? How should we live our lives? Now this psalm answers the question, not in grand brushstrokes, but in the routine and mundane aspects of daily life. The Psalms of Ascent were sung by the people of God as they made the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem three times per year to worship at the temple, which is where God dwelt in a special way. And this psalm was written by Solomon, uh, and it's one of the few Psalms of Ascent that was written by Solomon. So as we go through this psalm, I've divided it into the four pictures that we're given. The picture of the, of the house, the watchman of the city, the worker, and the family. And the psalm reads like Solomon's other wisdom literature, full of wise, practical sayings that we would benefit from. However, we can't always draw a straight line from how the first readers and singers of this psalm would have understood it to today. We need to see it through the lens of the New Testament and understand how it applies to us. Because the cross marks a, a sharp and a permanent change in the way in which the Old Testament should be understood. So let me explain how that works. The father of the nation of Israel, the patriarch was, of Israel, was great Abraham, who had met God and had been given a special threefold blessing. The blessing of the land of Israel, the blessing of many descendants, and the special blessing that through their race, through Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this is the framework that the people are living under as they sing this song on their way up to Jerusalem. So under this old covenant, material prosperity was a sign of God's blessing. Think of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, or Job, who recognized that their wealth was a particular sign of God's blessing. We also see that protection was a sign of God's favor. So when God's people were faithful, they were protected from their enemies. And when they were unfaithful, they were defeated by their enemies. And also we see that children were a fulfillment of God's promise. Through the promise of Abra to Abraham of many descendants, children were the, were the fulfillment of that promise. 
So that's the, that's the framework which the original readers would have, would have had as they read this psalm. But as we go through the psalm, we'll think through how the cross changes that and how we look through it through a, through a New Testament lens and, and how that applies to us today in 21st century Camberwell. So let's dive in. And my first point is personal. It's a, there's a personal application. And unless your life is built on the Lord, it will be a nothing. It will be a vanity. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So, so imagine this. Workers are building a, a beautiful house. It's a large house set in beautiful grounds. The owner buzzes around to make sure that everything is just so. This amazing house is built and the owners move in, but they don't get on. There's argument and discord, loneliness. The the neighbours are always recording arguments and shouting matches and sending it into the Guardian for everybody else to enjoy and delight in. The owners eventually separate and the house falls into disrepair. It is a house, but it's not a home. The whole purpose for the house has been lost. It's been built in vain. Building a house, no matter how small or great a house, the purpose of the house is more than shelter, isn't it? It's to create a home. Somewhere where you, your family, if you have one, or friends can come and enjoy peace and rest. There's a a great song by one of my favorite soul singers, Luther Vandross, and there's a line in it which states that a chair is still a chair, even if no one's sitting there. But a chair is not a house, and a house is not a home, unless you are there with me. And the idea that the house only becomes a home when his wife, his special person, is, is there with him. And I'm sure we can all relate to that. Some of the most beautiful houses are full of strife and loneliness, fear and sadness. And likewise, some of the smallest, pokiest houses can be full of love and laughter. You can build a house, but unless the Lord blesses it, you will have an empty shell. The builders who built it with such great energy and hope find that there is no rest, there is no peace in their house. It is not a home. They have labored in vain. The Hebrew word actually says, unless the Lord builds the house, it will be a nothing. It's like putting something on the scales and it's so light that it doesn't even register. It's, it's, it's a nothing. King Solomon, who wrote this psalm, may have understood from first-hand experience. The temple of Solomon was one of the wonders of the ancient world. However, what is sometimes overlooked is that he also built a house or a palace which was twice as big as the temple and took twice as long to build. It was, a, it was a special building. But the Bible says in 1 Kings that King Solomon loved many foreign women. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your heart after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And we see that after Solomon died, 
that his house, his family, fell apart. Solomon's house was clearly, not, was clearly a place of strife and jealousy and hatred. And ultimately, he lost the Lord's blessing. His great achievement, achievements were lost as the Lord judged him and his kingdom. So that's the picture. What, how does this apply to us? Very few of us build houses these days. We buy houses that have been, made, been built already. What's the picture for us? Well, surely the house that's being built is our lives. We live in a world where we're told to live our best lives now, to do what feels right, especially in the West, where many in our society have access to material wealth and blessings. Outwardly, they look sorted. Their lives look like happy homes. People may be tempted to say that they are blessed, However, from God's perspective, the blessed life is one which, first of all, is in relationship to him. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, you are very welcome. But I must tell you this, that if you are not in relationship with Jesus, your life is not blessed. Jesus said in in John chapter 17, verse 3, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And again, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, we read this, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And the big point here is that the Lord needs to build the house. First, you need to be in relationship with Jesus. Do you recognize that the successful life is one which is lived in dependence on God, going where he leads, working hard with the gift that you have been given? Are you prayerfully dependent on him to build your house? Are you laboring in your life, at home, at school, at work, in your own strength or in his? Do you recognize that unless the Lord builds your house, it will be in vain? It will be, it will be a nothing, a vanity. The second picture is the is the picture of the watchman on the wall, isn't it? I'm calling that community. The church community is the, is the living city built by the Lord. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. There are two ways to understand this picture. Protection from invading armies from outside the city or protection from corruption inside the city. You may want to think of this image in terms of protection from outside enemies. And the Israelites certainly had lots of experience of needing watchmen to sound the alarm to rouse the city from an invading army. There were famous instances where the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the invading army and could do nothing but wait for the Lord's deliverance. I mean, Solomon wrote this psalm, 
And when Solomon wrote this psalm, Jerusalem was at its most glorious. In Solomon's day, Jerusalem really was a city where the streets were paved with gold. But he could never have anticipated, or maybe he could have done because he had God's promise, what would happen in the future. But in 2 Kings chapter 7 and and chapter 18, Jerusalem is indeed attacked by invading armies and held siege. These invading armies, first the Arameans and then the Assyrians, are defeated by an act of God without any help from the city. But the sense of this psalm is not that of an invading army laying siege to the city. This psalm is all about day-to-day life. It's more about what's happening inside the city. So so imagine a, a city where the watchmen are alert and they raise the alarm whenever they get a sniff of anything suspicious from outside the gates. But the problem is that the enemy is inside the city walls. It may be a place of of hatred, of violence, and corruption. The watchmen are doing their job to protect the city externally, but it's in vain. They can't protect the city from itself. In fact, that is precisely why the Lord allowed the armies to lay siege to Jerusalem in the first place, because the people had turned away from him. See, unless the Lord builds the city, the watchmen can watch all night long, But the enemy might be inside the city, and the city could fall. So how does this apply to us today? We don't live in a walled city. We don't have watchmen. What does it mean for us? Well, in the New Testament, the churches are named after cities, Romans, Thessalonians, Ephesians. And in the book of Revelation, the church is described as the New Jerusalem, the very city being referenced in the psalm. So I believe we can apply this to the church today. As churches, we are dependent on God to build us up both numerically and spiritually. We can't do it ourselves. We need his spirit. And in this picture, the watchmen are church leaders. They can be alert and active, but they can't build a church by the strength of their activities alone. Look at the tools they've been given. The foolishness of studying and preaching from a 2,000-year-old book. If the Lord does not watch over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. How do we know that we are trusting the Lord to watch the city? We pray. Not just the leaders, but everyone The church needs to live in prayerful dependence on the Lord. How does the Lord watch over his people? He speaks to us in the gospel and through his word, as his spirit speaks and as we respond in praise and worship. As congregations, we need to listen and respond in prayerful obedience and faithfulness. And this is a particular challenge and opportunity for the church because the church community is often full of people who don't naturally have lots in common. The only thing that brings us together is the gospel. We often don't look alike. We have people from different social backgrounds, financial incomes, personality types, generations. 
We have people coming into our church family who bring perspectives and struggles that a gospel-focused church is uniquely placed to address. However, it can make it feel like a very fragile community. Don't you think? And unless the Lord's presence and blessing is over the church family, it could fall apart. Living in the city is to be part of the church community, and we must depend on the Lord's blessing and favor for our church. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you pray for your church? Do you pray for your leaders? Do you pray for reconciled relationships? Do you pray for spiritual growth? Do you recognize that unless the Lord watches over the city, everything else is in vain? This living in the city also foreshadows the time when we, God's people, his glorious bride, will be redeemed as a multicultural, diverse, intergenerational, gospel-centered community. We will no longer need watchmen to guard the walls, as there will no longer be walls, and there will no longer be enemies, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The third picture is work. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Work. Work should not define us, but our relationship to Jesus. So look with me at Psalm 127 again, verse 2. These people work hard. They rise rise up early and they go late to rest. They're anxious and they can't sleep. These were people of the land. They lived in an agrarian society, so if the crops failed, they would literally be out of bread. Their bread of anxious toil was literally for bread. But they don't make the plants grow. They don't have modern irrigation. They were dependent on the rain. They were directly dependent on God for their food. This psalm is a psalm of Solomon, and he took up this theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. So you want to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 21 to 26. I'll read it from your, um, from your church Bibles. Page what, sorry? Page six, six, I've got another, I've got the bigger version. Thanks, David. Okay, page 668. Just again, a slightly different version. I'll read, it, I'll read it from my version. 
For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better, so verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Work. How how does this apply to us in 21st century London? The picture of anxious toil is familiar to us, isn't it? Whether we're working inside or outside the house, whether our work is attempting to shape the perfect career or the perfect child, or both. We see it in our society and we see it in ourselves. This psalm is so relevant to us. To quote the New York pastor, Tim Keller, he says, when you make your work your identity, if you're successful, it destroys you because it goes to your head. If you're not successful, it destroys you because it goes to your heart. It destroys your self-worth. What you need is faith. Faith that gives you an identity that's not in your work or accomplishment and that gives you insulation against the weather changes. If you're successful, you stay humble. If you're not successful, you have some ballast. So basically, making your work, your identity, kind of an idol, to use biblical terminology, is maybe the big sin of a city like London. And when works like that, the result is that we can never rest. 74% of UK adults have felt so stressed at some point over the last year, they felt overwhelmed or unable to cope. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, we've just come through results period uh, for A-levels and GCSEs, and I've got two children who've just gone through that. And our children are told that they're being defined by how they do in these exams. And that's an idol, isn't it? Our children are not defined by how well they do in their exams. They're defined by their relationship to Jesus. And whether they do well or badly doesn't change that. And that's what I've been trying to to tell my children, that whatever happens, however well or badly they do, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing should be their relationship to Jesus. That's what defines them. That's what makes their life worthwhile. That's what gives them life. And those who trust in the Lord recognize that work is from God. 
It doesn't define them. It's something which they do for the glory of the Lord. And if work goes well or badly, they maintain a sense of poise amidst the disappointment and discouragement. Those people are given rest because their work is in God's hands. This is an important message for all of us. We all work, whether we work inside the house, outside the house, or even in church. We can all make our work our identity. We work harder and harder, worrying that things will collapse unless we do, do, do. But this psalm is reminding us that the Lord blesses our work. He doesn't need our help. And if the work behind the work is to find our identity, to be someone because of what we do or what our children do, it will be in vain. We will never know rest. We know the stress and restlessness of pressurized work. There is so much to do. And so we become anxious and we can't sleep. So as we go into a new week, we should pray and remind ourselves that however busy and pressurized our life and work is, it is from God. But recognize that our true value and meaning comes from a different source. And we should pray and ask God to see our work, whatever it is, in the right perspective. And to seek his promised rest. Will you do that this week? The fourth picture we see in this, in this psalm is of family. I think this, uh, this, uh, these verses have been widely misunderstood in our modern day. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The picture that is conjured up here in these verses is of a proud father working in harmony with his strong sons on the land, being honored in the community as a respectable elder and a defender of the home. But this psalm is telling us that unless the Lord builds, blesses, or watches over all these endeavors, they're in vain. So how does that work in the family? Well, the role of families and sons in particular was slightly different to today in the Old Testament. They were essential to the continuation and protection of the family and needed help in an agrarian society and a direct link to the promises of God to the Israelites through Abraham. So imagine... A family rejoices in the birth of a child, but rather than bringing joy and honor to their parents, they bring stigma and shame. We have a, a Hebrew scholar in our church. He's, a, he's an Egyptian. He speaks um, Hebrew as, as, as fluently. And he said that this final phrase in the original, uh, where it talks about um, enemies at the gate, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate, is actually talking about battle, which makes more sense. Why would you speak with your enemies at the gate? He's talking about the children will, the children will support him in a battle, in a battle with his neighbors, in a battle with his enemies. But a son who is a drunk or a tearaway, or even worse, a traitor, will be of no help to a father in a battle, will he? The rapper Dave speaking to the Evening Standard recently, said that his mum was now proud of him for the first time 
as two of his three brothers were in jail. His mum had to endure the stigma and the taunts of people who said, oh, you're the woman whose children are in jail. But now she could hold her head up high because she has a son she could be proud of. And this was the spirit and emphasis of family in the Old Covenant. Children were a blessing and the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Children weren't just decorative. They had a purpose. They would work, provide, and protect. Children were a blessing from the Lord in that society and a fulfillment of the promise in the Old Covenant. So how are we meant to think of these verses, this side of the cross? How are we meant to think of these verses today? And the first thing to say is that children remain a blessing to those families that have them. Those of us who have had them rejoice in them, and we recognize that it's not something we deserve, but it's a wonderful blessing. However, however, remarkably, in in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we're not told about the children of a single disciple or apostle. Jesus never had children, neither did the Apostle Paul. Children were clearly still around and a joy and a blessing, but clearly they weren't the fulfillment of the gospel blessing in the same way that they were in the Old Covenant. And I'm conscious that I'm speaking in a Peter Baptist church, and I'm not talking about baptism here. How are children and families described in the New Testament? Well, in Matthew 12, we read, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In 1 Timothy, Paul calls Timothy his true son. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 1, Paul tells Timothy to treat people in the church as family. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Even more incredibly, Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. As New Testament believers, the emphasis on family is different. It is the family of God, not the human family, which is the fulfillment of blessing. This is not saying that the human family is not important, but that the specific blessing given to Christian believers is each other. And this is the blessing from the Lord. And this is not a comment on the covenantal promises made in the Old Testament that carry through to the New Testament. But Paul states in Romans 9.6, not all descended from Israel are of Israel, i.e. not everyone who is circumcised is of faith. 
Likewise, not everyone who's been baptized as a child into the new covenant community is a believer. They too must be born again. People coming to faith is a remarkable act of God's grace, a heritage of the Lord, and we are given to each other to take care of and to bless and to be blessed by. And we need to seek God's blessing by prayerfully depending on him to create new spiritual children and brothers and sisters. If we are parents, our most urgent prayer should be that, they are, that our children are given the greatest gift of faith. So my question to you here tonight is this. Are we prayerfully seeking God to do his work and grow his family in our city, in our church? Children are a heritage from the Lord. Are we asking God for a quiverful of blessed children in our church for new believers? So as we go into a new week, how will we encourage each other in our personal lives, in our community lives, in our work lives, in our evangelism? In all these, we are to recognize our dependence on God and to seek his blessing and obedience to his word to be a blessing to the church family in which he's placed us. May God grant us grace to do that. Let's pray. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Father, we recognize that we are dependent on you in every aspect of our lives. Lord, unless you bless us, unless we know your presence with us, we will fail. And Lord, we ask you to come and build our lives, build our churches, build our families, build our, our work lives, so that, Lord, they can all redound to your great glory and to our salvation. And Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.